This is May Pang, and you're listening to Everything Fab 4 on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. We said, what? It's not released for another, like, week or ten days. He said, I've got the album. So, obviously... Something had fallen off the back of a truck, a few Sgt. Peppers. We actually got that album that day, the one that I still have to this to this moment. And we couldn't get in the car quick enough. We drove back to Mary's uh, parents' place and we sat on the floor, put Sgt. Pepper on and just kept turning it over and over and over. Today's guest is celebrated English guitarist, singer and songwriter Peter Frampton. Born in April 1950, Frampton was a musical prodigy, teaching himself to play the guitar at age seven. Within the next few years, he mastered complex jazz, blues, and rock riffs. His early influences were Cliff Richard and the Shadows, American rockers Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran. Meanwhile, his father introduced him to the recordings of jazz guitarist Django Reinhardt. Frampton spent his preteen years performing with bands like The Little Ravens, The True Beats, and George and the Dragons, a group that included fellow up-and-coming musician David Bowie. In 1967, under the mentorship of the Rolling Stones' Bill Wyman, the teenage Frampton became the lead guitarist and singer for the pop group The Herd and achieved the adoration of teenage fans with hit singles like From the Underworld and I Don't Want Our Loving to Die. After a stint with the blues-based rock band Humble Pie, Frampton decided to strike out on his own. The popularity of his first three solo albums, coupled with Frampton's captivating live performances, culminated in the 1976 live double recording, Frampton Comes Alive, which sold more than 10 million copies. The LP held the notable distinction of being the best-selling live rock album in history, while the singles Baby I Love Your Way, Do You Feel Like I Do, and Show Me The Way dominated the American charts. Considered the crowning achievement of Frampton's career, the album influenced both Billboard and Rolling Stone magazine to name him Artist of the Year. Welcome, Peter Frampton. I wonder if if we could start out by going back in time, and and, and I know a lot of our listeners will be very interested in learning uh, the very first moment when you got that musical bug. It was people like seeing people on English TV like uh, Lonnie Donegan and um, then, you know, The Shadows, Cliff Richard, Adam Faith, Billy Fury, all these English rockers. And um, 
and skillful people. And um, that's when I first uh, started to get interested. And uh, it wasn't very long before we got our first record player when I was very young and my father brought home, um, well, the two, the first two albums I remember we had was um, the Shadows album uh, uh, with Hank Marvin, the lead player, lead guitarist, who I wanted to be. I wanted to be Hank Marvin. And uh, then the other album, that was for me. And then the other album that my, my mom and dad loved, uh, which I hated to start with, was um, Hot Club de France with uh, Stéphane Grappelli and Django Reinhardt. And when my dad, I'd finished playing the Shadows record, and then my dad, I couldn't get out of the room quick enough before he put on um, the Hot Club de France, Django Reinhardt. And I can't believe I even thought that back then. But uh, gradually, it, this was like a weekend occurrence every every weekend. So we'd have a listening session. Dad would listen to The Shadows and I wouldn't listen to Django Reinhardt. And, um, and then as I was leaving the room uh, to go upstairs to play more guitar, one day I heard this run that Django Reinhardt did from the open E string, low E, all the way to the end of the frets and, and higher on the very high E. And I just gulped and said, I think I should listen to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so from then on, uh, it's been a combination of, uh, well, Django Reinhardt and, and um, Hank Marvin started off uh, my my venture, basic my adventure. And what was your first guitar? What guitar were you running upstairs to play uh, during your escapes from Django? Which, of course, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the first guitar I got when I was eight was um, it was a no name. Um, I, I don't know where my dad got it, but it was the cheapest steel string acoustic probably and then he got himself a gut string one um for for uh, classical style and because he was a bit of a player too and um so that was it it was I, it never had a name uh, <laughs> it was just it was called a plectrum guitar so, <laughs> <laughs> so your father then you know being a player himself is really maybe your first key influence well um yes it was a combination of him and his mother my grandmother nana um and we went up to the attic to get down the suitcases one one year when i was probably seven at the time and and uh we were going going on our two-week summer holidays vacation and um uh I went up into the attic, which was fun with my dad and, uh, you know, looking at all the stuff around there. And I said, what's this? And it was a little tiny black leather case. And he said, oh, uh, Nana, Nana gave that to me. Um, it's, a, it's her banjo lele. It's a banjo-shaped ukulele. And um, so I said, well, can we, can we have a look? And so we're sitting in the attic, and then my dad sings me Michael Row the Boat on it, with it. 
And I went, I think that was more than anyone else, all these other musicians that I was listening to on the radio uh, and, and bands and stuff. That was it. When my dad played that for me, I thought, because he was, um, to digress, he was a, uh, a, a um, an incredible artist, um, uh, a teacher, and and um, did his own designs and everything, and and works, and so. But but I thought I could never be as good as him because he was the best. So you can't beat the best. So when he played whatever it was, hang down your head, Tom Dooley or, or Michael row the boat. I, I instantly thought I can do this and I'll do it better than dad. So it was that challenge that he put down. He didn't realize that it was putting a challenge down. He was just trying to interest me in, in music and um, playing an instrument. Well, I got that. I got the memo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there. I love this story because there are so many wonderful instances where there's a supporting parent, right? A supportive parent who is mm-hmm. back there, you know, you know, whether a kid wants to be a writer and they take them to the library or in the, this wonderful story you just told, uh, even more so than the stories of, you know, the kid who's the rebel and has to play the guitar, you right. know, like Lennon and his, his aunt. Right. You know, right. So uh, that's just beautiful. Why do you, and, and this is a big clumsy question. I apologize, but mm-hmm. it, I've been thinking about it and I, I'm sure you have too. Why is it that we get to the mid late fifties, the 1950s and England becomes this, this almost uh, quiet proving ground for what's going to happen to popular music in the 1960s. What is it? You know, obviously we have American rock and roll and rhythm and blues and all of those great influences have been churning now for a couple of decades and influencing folks on your end. But why is it that England then, uh, whom my British friends constantly remind me, is just a small island, right? Why is it that it becomes this kind of hotbed for what's going to happen in the 60s? Well, I have a I have a theory about this. First of all, you mentioned the main uh, uh, um, attraction to music was the American music that we couldn't we couldn't get enough of it. Um, you know, uh, you know, Elvis and and blues and jazz and everything uh, that was going on in the mid fifties. Um, but I think that. Um, I was born in 1950, so I was born five years, uh, four years after the Pacific War had finished, but four years after the European uh, War had been uh, uh, had been won by the Allies, and that I, I think those two first and second war wars just um, completely changed the outlook of the way people lived in England. I can only speak of England because I that's why I was brought up. But I think that when my mother and father finished their work, my, my dad was a, 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 a lieutenant um, in the artillery and fought in every major battle in, in the Second World War, my mother working for the Americans. Um, uh, and I think that they were so glad and happy, I think in general, I'm talking about England, that those who came back, came back. And um, there was a change 
we were in the tail end. My grandparents were Victorian to the hilt, you know, ish. So um, <laughs> of, you know, children should be seen and not heard. Well, I think that because uh, my parents had been and and the country, the world had been through uh, this in- incredible period of not knowing whether they were going to survive or not. When when we actually did, everyone did come back that that survived. There was a different outlook on life, and they wanted for their children. They they felt like well, this is me putting words in their mouths, but they felt that we have fought this war. We've got rid of Nazism and um, and isolationism, and and our children. I want for my, our children more than we had. I don't want a war. I don't want them to have. To, and I think that. What happened at that point, we were given a, a lot more freedom as children in that era. Uh, we weren't, I, I wasn't sent off to boarding school or anything like that. I mean, it was just, it was a, an incredible period of peace and rebuilding. And I think that, uh, that the children of, of the, the baby booms, um, especially in England, um, found themselves to be freer, not that we knew it, but we were allowed to do things, I was anyway, allowed to do things that maybe my my parents weren't allowed to do, you know. So um, there's all sorts of stories there too. But, but I, I think that because of that and because England is, is such a, a, a small smorgasbord of talent, um, but but a lot of talent. I mean, it's a small place, but there's just so much. There was so much talent waiting to be tapped. Um, I think that that's that's why. You know, I was in a band when I was ten. You know, so it, you know, and and I wasn't the first. You know, I was kind of halfway through the first generation of guys in bands. You know, in England, and uh, you know, whereas. You know, David Bowie was Jones was my buddy was like three or four years older than me. And he was more influenced by Elvis than I was because that wasn't I that I wasn't really old enough to appreciate him when he first started. Um, But I think that's why uh, there was so much uh, creativity allowed Probably for the first time, that amount in such young people uh, en masse. Obviously, though, there's always been and always going to be breakout talent um, that are, you know, uh, prodigies by the time they're four, you know. But but this was en masse, I think, that it was a different, um, if it's a different time. It was the beginning of a new era at that point. And you were born... uh almost at the most perfect time during that generation, because a lot of the folks who would become your contemporaries are, were born in the early 1940s. And here you are coming up. So you're, you're kind of just slightly young enough to uh, interact with two different age groups. The ones who are slightly older than you, the John Paul, mm-hmm. George and Ringo's, and right. then older folks, right? Who, uh, sorry, the younger folks who are going to come along sort of in your wake. It really yeah. pitfalls you in a very interesting place in this, this whole story. Yes, I had, I had my heroes already um, that, uh, and a lot of them, I, because of 
my my creative talent very young, I got to meet a lot of them, you know, because and also, you know, we all live in this small area <laughs> over there, uh, um, and, and and so it is a smaller scene, but but you're more able to to be on top of what's going on everywhere in the country, you know. So, um, yeah, it was it, it was a great period for me, not realizing that I had been born at a particularly great time, you know. Absolutely. A very beneficial time. And so do you recall the first embers of, of the Beatles? When, when did you first hear these guys? Um, well, I, I saw them, I, I believe, it was a show like Thank Your Lucky Stars in England. It was 1962, and they came out with um, uh, Love Me Do. And I was so taken by, by the sound of their voices and the band's the musical sound, the instrument sound. And then John Lennon played a harmonica, and it was just all, it was unique. It was something, this wasn't four guys playing an instrumental anymore, or this wasn't, you know, uh, um, Cliff Richard singing a song with four guys behind him in suits. Uh, this was, this was uh, well, they were in suits too, but <laughs> the people. <laughs> but um, this was, and they'd written it themselves. You know, this was self-contained genius as far as I was concerned at that time. And, um, and of course, that 1962, no one in America really knew of the Beatles except us, you know, in, in England. And uh, so um, I couldn't wait for their next record, you know, and everyone in England felt the same way. It was so different, unique, and attractive um, they were pop songs at that time, uh, very much so, and, you know, very much love songs. But they did covers of all this. Amer their first album was nearly all covers of American music, you know. So um, that shows you what we'd all been listening to. And whenever we could, whenever the, uh, you know, the Beatles used to say that, that uh, you know, they lived up in Liverpool, obviously, and when the boats would come and the ships would come in from um, uh, cargo ships would come in from New York, uh, the sailors would all bring these blues, jazz and rock records. Well, not so much, well, pop rock, whatever it was at the time and um, rockabilly almost at that time. And um, and and that's how. Uh, it wasn't by radio that we heard about all these American uh, acts. It was through uh, the Merchant Seamen's Seamen bringing it, bringing the albums from America, and then all the bands would go and know someone who had brought these albums over and be listening to them and getting um, uh, inspired by all this great American music. We'll be back with more from Peter Frampton after these messages. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back with more from Peter Frampton on everything Fab Four. One of the hallmarks of the Beatles' story, of course, is the way in which they would outdo themselves. And I understand that a key record for you would be Sgt. Pepper. And is it true that you got an early copy? I have... Uh, earlier than a release copy. <laughs> um, yeah, I have. But uh, first of all, I have one of the very first mono copies, and I have also one of the very first stereo copies, both from 1967. And so, um, no, I don't want to hear what you want to pay for it. I'm not selling. Um, <laughs> but um, yes, so. Um, my girlfriend who became my wife, Mary, um, uh, first wife. And, uh, we, we went up to, we would go up to London. Um, we live South in South London. We would, we would go up on the weekend to, uh, Petticoat Lane, which was a, uh, uh, just a street fair. And, um, it was every Sunday. And so we'd go up, whenever we felt like it. Well, this time we were just looking, there was the guy there with, that had the, the wooden uh, album boxes with all these albums, like sort of an outdoor record shop. And um, we're looking through the albums and, and he goes, uh, would you like, are you Beatles fans? I said, we said, Oh yeah, of course. This is 10 days before the release of Sergeant Pepper. So I said, well, I've got the new album. We said, what? It's not released for another like week or 10 days. He said, I've got the album. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously something had fallen off the back of a truck, uh, a few albums, a few Sergeant Peppers. So um, we actually got that album that day, the one that I still have to this to this moment. And we couldn't get in the car quick enough. We drove back to Mary's uh, parents' place and we sat on the floor, put Sergeant Pepper on and just kept turning it over and over and over. And her mother kept on coming in to check on us and said, do you want anything to eat? You know, I remember, <laughs> you want something to drink? No, no, I, I uh, uh, we're listening. So we must have listened to it half a dozen times, if not more, you know, both sides. And it was something that um, I, I, when I first saw them on that first show, I felt it was unique. This was uh, out of this world unique. Um, there were sounds. Uh, I'm a very technical. Uh, audio is, is a big thing for me. I love it. I've always always messed with with my own records and recorded myself and and mixed um when i'm not around a an incredible engineer like some of the wonderful ones i've worked with but it was this sound and 
it didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard before. And um, of course, now, you know, we just accept it. Um, but this was done on four track recording, not eight track. This was done on four track recording, four track to four track. They would mix it down to two tracks from four tracks, open up two more tracks, and then they did it again. And they went back to another four track to overdub. So uh, it's so incredible how they worked out and to keep it in stereo, which, which blew my mind, you know? So, um, technically it's a, it's, it was almost an impossible feat at that time in history or audio history, techn technological history. And, but they did it. They did it. You know, and it, it will still have that power. I mean, in fact, today, some kid or kids, probably hundreds, if not more, are making that same discovery and thinking, where has this been in my life? Mm -hmm. it, it, it has that power. Yes. Uh, and of course, I haven't mentioned the songs. <laughs> the <laughs> there song, are some there, yeah. You know, it was uh, obviously the, the, uh, the join together side was... I was just incredible, you know. Um, I, I still marvel at it, and I still play it. Um, I'm I'm hooking up my. I I've just moved to a new place, and I I can't wait to hook my um, my turntable up so I can listen to it on vinyl again. We have a, a an event here we do every month called Record Club, and we bring folks together and and we do something very old fashioned where we play the songs, and you know we could have a few hundred people there and we listen together. And one of the greatest moments we had a few years back uh, was listening to a day in the life as a group. You know, when you can sort of feel that kind of shared experience, and that song is as wonderful and magnificent as any Shakespeare play, with all of the emotion and the drama, and as you said, the sound and the sonic uh, contours and the audio. It's it's just uh, it's still a stunning achievement. Yeah, it's it's probably my all time favorite from track from that album. Even though I, I it's hard to say that. But I mean, if I had to pick one, that would be it. Only it was technologically incredible. The the they made the um, London Symphony players um, play sort of stuff uh, that they'd never played before, probably. And it just was finding uh, going somewhere that no man had gone before, you know, and <laughs> no, no artist had gone before anyway. And they, they broke barriers, and especially in that song. Then they did it with I Am The Walrus. And, and you know, they went further, you know, later. But, um, yeah, it, it's, it's just pretty incredible. I remember them saying that they would never, when they used a piano, they would never have the same piano sound on any record. They would try to make it sound different. They'd speed it up. They'd slow it down. They'd make it very toppy. They'd, you know... Um, they'd flange it, <laughs> um, they do all sorts of stuff, but they never would record a piano or anything really the same way, you know, because they were trying to, to break through, you know, uh, and, and break through barriers that had been there for so long. You know, in a lot of ways, recording artistry to me seems like exercises, particularly during that period, but maybe even today, and you would know better than most, 
exercises in problem solving. You know, you have an idea in your head, like a day in the life. You have to work inside the existing technology. You want to try to reproduce that sound. And even today, I would assume you still have to build workarounds to to capture the the music in your head. Yes, you do. Um, And I like I always said, I mean, technology is wonderful um, to help you, but you have to have a great song to start with that, that you're going to record. Um, you know, that's why, you know, I don't ever record anything unless I can either sit at a piano or, or play guitar and voice. And if it stands up with one instrument and one voice and I still like it, and then, then that's, that's the way then you know that you've got a great song. All this technology can't make a, a bad song into a good one. So it's um, if you've got the song and you've got it in your head and you've made a little demo of it maybe, um, even if it's just you and an acoustic, you have a you have a game plan that you work out. It's much, much easier these days. Um, I mean, you can record on an iPad, an iPhone, whatever, you can make a, and records have been made that way. So anybody uh, with any, um, any technological um, prowess, uh, even just a little, they make it so easy now to record, can do, um, can do marvels with the technology today. But you still got to have the talent, right? As uh, uh, was my wife and I saw uh, Depeche Mode uh, when they were still a, a, a threesome um, uh, a few years ago in the city uh, during an interview. And uh, Dave Gahan said one of the reasons they played keyboards was the guitar is difficult to do really, really well. And that was a challenge they had to overcome in making their start. Um, so here you are, you've Obviously, you've been in Humble Pie making great rock and roll. You're transitioning toward a solo career. I want to take you back, if you will, for a moment to running into George Harrison during the making of the Doris Troy LP for Apple. Um, That was an an important brush, right? Oh, yes, yes. Um, I had yet to meet a Beatle uh, (laughs) at this point. And uh, didn't expect to meet one that day either. So, uh, yes, my my dear friend uh, 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 Terry Doran, who actually is the man man from the motor trade, um, he's meant that's who they talk. Paul's talking about in there. He was first of all he was John Lennon's assistant, and then uh, he moved to being George's assistant, and so everyone knew Terry. He was a lovely man, and we've lost him. Rest in peace. And uh, and so, my wife and I would would uh, uh, well girlfriend Mary and I would go up to town and hang out. And this time I went up, and um, I believe I was on my own and just met with Terry. And he said uh, uh, at a pub, and he said, "You on Wardour Street?" And he said, "Do you want to come and um, do you want to come and meet?" Uh, George, and he actually used his his uh, code name, um, and it slipped my mind right now. Um, but anyway, um, so um, I said George who, <laughs> 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 and and he said Harrison. I said, uh, 
are you kidding me? Yes, of course I would love to meet him. He said, well, he's recording at Trident, which was literally half a block down the road from where we were. And so Terry had taken George to the studio, dropped him off, and then we met in the in the pub, you know. And uh, so we're walking down. I, I'd been to Trident before, um, and, and we walked walked in the control room, which is upstairs, and George was behind the console, and he just looked up and said, hello, Pete. And I thought, well, how does he know who I am? <laughs> well, he is the mystical one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I've been in the herd and humble pie, so you don't even think that a beetle not, might know who you are, you know. So anyway, um, so then we start talking, and I'm, I'm – shivering i'm i'm like beside myself literally and uh this is such an awesome experience and and uh so he goes do you want to play so i said now <laughs> he said yeah so he takes me down and i said yeah let so he takes me down in the studio and they've just finished writing a song and uh with doris george and i didn't really notice who was sitting just to the left of me when when um George gave me uh, one of his his famous red Les Paul to play, and it was Stephen Stills, and <laughs> who, who later who then became a great friend. But um, so, and George says, "Look, here's the chords," and he plugged me into a little Fender amp, and uh, he said, uh, "Okay, so let's 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 do a, a run through." So we did a run through, and. Um, I'm playing sheepishly rhythm. I'm thinking, well, George is going to play the lead, and I'll 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 just play rhythm. So uh, he stops halfway through the song and he goes, "No, Pete, I want you to play lead." And I I thought, you know, all my birthdays and Christmases had come at once, you know? <laughs> and um, I couldn't believe it. So. You know, I played all the all the basic licks the um, on "Ain't That Cute," which was the first single from from Doris's first um, first single from this album, which was George's first production for the Beatles Apple label. Um, so, and then George did a slide thing as well later on. But basically, I'm playing lead guitar all over it. So at the end of the session, um, George said to me, we're, we're doing more sessions. Would you come back? So uh, so I ended up playing on, I think, six or seven tracks on that album. And, um, you know, that's where I met Ringo and Klaus Foreman and uh, all these incredible players, you know. And you were a, a featured player on All Things Must Pass. That there exactly, and then he called me back, and um, George would always call me directly, and and uh, he said, "Would you come and play some acoustic with me and Badfinger?" Um, um, Phil um, Phil Spector is producing, and you know him. He wants twenty seven of every instrument. You know, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, there were two basses, two pianos, two drummers, two you, you name it. And a multitude of, of, of us on guitar. So it's me sitting next to George and then sitting next to Badfinger, th three of them anyway. 
what a room. And the, the fellow who took the cover photo for the Dor- Doris Troy LP was Mal Evans, who I understand you run into during the Son of Dracula film. Yes. Um, what was Mal like? Oh, he was a super, super guy. I mean, um, yeah, I have fond memories of, of Mal. He was a gentle giant and uh, a teddy bear. And, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was like he was as famous as the Beatles, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, he was a lovely guy. And, um, yeah, I I, um, I got asked by Ringo to, to be part of these different bands that were going to be in this. We'd done, uh, I'd done... Um, uh, son of Schmilson with, with, uh, because of George, uh, Nielsen, Harry asked me to come and play on, on son of Schmilson. And so I did. And then after we, after we finished that album, then he said, well, we're going to make Ringo and I going to make a movie, uh, called son of Dracula or whatever it was called. And, um, he said, you know, will you be in the band? I said, yeah, of course. I don't mind. So um, he needed one more player. So I got Rick Wills from my band, Frampton's Camel at the time, to come and be a rhythm player. And uh, But he didn't have a guitar. I brought my Les Paul, but, but he didn't, Rick didn't have a guitar. So we told Mal... Um, we don't. We need an extra guitar. So he said, "Oh well, wait a second. And he goes out to the car, the trunk of his car, and he brings, he brings in all these guitars, guitar cases. And every time we open one up, we realize these are the Beatles guitars, and uh, and the Rickenbacker that the black Rickenbacker that that John played." When we turned it, that was the one that Rick Wills played. When we looked on the back of the guitar, it had the set list from Candlestick Park. <laughs> that must have been staggering. It was. But, you know, these guitars were just laying around. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, they were probably in the trunk of Mal's Humber Hawk. <laughs> exactly. You know, so it's like... And, you know, there was um, Paul's bass, the, the fiddle bass, and and George's uh, um, Rickenbackers and Gretsch's. I mean, it was amazing, you know, the insight we got. Uh, but looking at the set list from, and it was only like 20 minutes, the set. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it was quite amazing. Um, and But, of course, the band, uh, on various different, a couple of different locations we filmed in. And one one time, it was always Klaus on bass, me on guitar, Rick on rhythm. And then one of the sessions, one of the filming dates was Keith Moon on drums. And the other time was John Bonham. So uh, it was just the hits keep on coming, you know, it was just so amazing to be involved in this, uh, the center of British rock, you know, at that time. 
Well, and that guitar too. I mean, that if that's the Rick three twenty, the Capri. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's a you know that's that guitar would actually make its progress back to the states uh, with Maypang, who would bring it for John. And uh, according to our friend Jack Douglas, it would be the last guitar John would ever play on the guitar solo for Walking on Thin Ice. Oh, wow. You know, so the history of that instrument, that's the Ed Sullivan guitar. Exactly. Yeah. And it's sitting in Mal's trunk. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We just didn't care. We didn't think that what we had back then was, uh, let alone being a Beatle, but just guitars in general, um, we would refinish them. We would, and these are like, you know, early 60s guitars, which are now worth thousands, you know. Not more. (laughs) <laughs> oh, many more. Yeah, yeah. So um, millions, some of these now. And uh, we just had no idea um, how these guitars would age and and become so valuable. I'm very, very lucky that, um, you know, I've been able to, uh, you know, uh, obtain some of these uh, original, you know, 60s um, and 59s and 60s guitars because um, there was something about that era of guitar making and amp making that was just, it hasn't been, uh, it, it hasn't been repeated. Something about, I guess, the craftsmanship, perhaps. You know, uh, during the same period when you're, you're playing all these wonderful guest spots, of course, your solo career is beginning. And I like to think about those first few albums of yours, which... Uh, are just marvelous as a kind of slow burn. There's this kind of slow burn occurring that of course explodes uh, toward the middle of the decade with Frampton comes alive. What do you think it was about, about that moment uh, in your career where all of these elements seem, of course, great songs at the core of it really help, (laughs) but all of these elements come together so fantastically. Um, Um yeah, it's it's um it's very interesting because um there's a there's a studio me and there's a live me and there's something extra that the audience get out of me when I play live. Um I think uh all inhibitions uh disappear and I just become the real me, I guess. Um and that's something that well yeah, we can tell it's the real you, but but how does that translate to the music on the album? And it does. Uh, I can't put my finger on it other than there is a joy that I have when I play that people actually, you, it, you can feel it when you play it, when you play that album. Yeah, and you know the song where, and it is the climax of the record in many ways, uh, where I really hear that is, do you feel like we do? Because there's an exuberance in your voice that while I love the version on the original album, it's not there like it is in that live performance. There, You're almost working on the edge of something. Yes. As you sing that. Um, and you interact with your marvelous keyboard player and that it did help. You had a great band working with oh, you. Yes. I mean, those guys... You know, they were just locked in with you, but that song really becomes a kind of climax for something. 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I never realized that writing about a hangover was going to be <laughs> <laughs> was going to be such a, a, a wow life changing moment for me. And and the song is still. Why well, it just won an award? Did you see that? I did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> for the for the longest uh, bathroom break, the best bathroom break song for a DJ. Uh, and I beat Stairway to Heaven. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie, Mal Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a one-wall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world and everyone has a story.